Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and today I am very excited to have as my guest, Michael Gersh, and Michael is going to kick off the second season of the Teaching Journeys podcast, and this episode will drop sometime during the first week of September. Um, and I'm thrilled because Michael has a amazing story, something that we can't do justice in the normal time frame that I, I usually do our podcast. So we're for, we're calling this a special to open up the second the second season. So we may go a little longer, but trust me, you're going to want to stay with me and listen to everything Michael has to say. His story is inspiring. It's heartfelt. Uh, it's poignant. And you'll want to listen to every word that he has to say. But before, and he all, we also have a special guest as well, too. We're going to have dueling Tiggers today as well, too. He's, Michael brought his Tigger. I brought mine. Tigger's, Tigger, as you're going to find out for the both of us, has been a very instrumental character in our grief journeys. And he has some, some symbolism that we may not typically associate with the traditional grief journey, but he trusts us. It, it has significance. So before we begin, I'm going to read a, tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael Gersh is a survivor of a drunk driving crash that killed his mother and nearly himself when he was eight weeks old. Despite breaking almost all his bones in the crash, he went on to become a collegiate swimmer, a comedian, a speaker, an author, a college educator, and photographer. In 2015, he founded the Magic of Life Foundation, a nonprofit organization that helps his mission in eliminating impaired driving, making communities safer, and empowering people to make better choices in life. In 2019, he published his memoir, The Magic of Life, a son's story after tragedy, grief, and a speedo. You're going to have to tell us more about the speedo, Michael, when we get, we get going. One of Amazon readers said, this book will inspire any reader to be a better person, this is one of the best books I have read in a long time. And I had the pleasure of reading Michael's memoir. It is just outstanding. It really details his journey, his challenges in a very honest, very heartfelt, and very raw way. He leaves nothing left unsaid. It's just a great book I would highly recommend. And you can buy the book either on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. So, and I could have read much, much more on you, Michael, but... Um, but we're gonna, that, we know that's going to come out in this program notes, the show notes when the, the episode drops, and we, we know it'll come out during the interview. So welcome. I am very happy to have you on the Teaching Journeys podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. You know what? I can't follow that. So good night, folks. That's it. That's all. That's all the time we have. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know how to follow that up. That uh, is very humbling, and uh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your your kind words, and you know, 
two weeks away from my 53rd birthday uh, as of today. And as you alluded to in the introduction, I was, I was almost killed at eight weeks old uh, due to a drunk driver. So any day that I'm still here and uh, is, is, is a good day and to make a difference, make someone laugh. Uh, those are my two primary goals. And yeah, it, it doesn't dawn on me being 53 in, in a couple of weeks and how amazing that feat is. So I'm very happy to be here to kick off your uh, second season. Yeah, and I'm very happy to have you as well. And and yeah, given what I read in your book, it's, it's a miracle that you're even setting up and taking nourishment at this point. True. I mean, when the car crash happened, it uh, my father was driving his home from Long Island, and we lived in Spring Valley uh, back in 1970. And we were less than a mile away from our house when we had a red light, and uh, my dad was driving, my mom was in the front middle seat, and I was next to my mom. My brother, who was three, was sleeping in the back seat, not wearing his seatbelt. And as our light started to go, as our light turned green, my dad started to go through the intersection where a drunk driver plowed the, through the intersection and T-boned the car on the passenger side. And it pushed our car into a telephone pole and the car all the way up to the dashboard. So when the first responders arrived, they found my father, they found my brother, and they found my mom. Uh, another 10, 15 minutes went by, and someone found me sandwiched between the door and the dash of the car. We were taken to the hospital in the same ambulance, all, all four of us. And my dad had to get stitches on his face from the windshield hitting his face. My, my mom was taken into surgery. My brother didn't have a scratch on him. And as for me, uh, nearly every, every bone in my body was broken. I was life flighted to another hospital where my aunt Sue lost count of how many blood transfusions I received to stay alive. So the doctors are telling my dad at this point in time, well, your wife is fighting for her life and your son is touch and go. You take any one of those cases for one person and that's a lot. But my dad had to deal with both. Unfortunately, my mom died September 20th, 1970 due to her injuries. So I never had that chance as a son to, you know, run home from school and say, hey, mom, look, you know, look what I drew for you. Or, hey, mom, what's for dinner? Or, hey, mom, three simple words, I love you. Uh, the word mom isn't in my own vocabulary. I mean, the word mother is, it's usually followed by another word when I'm stuck in traffic. But uh, I won't say that for you tonight. You know, it's just, and the word mom has no meaning. It's no emotion behind it. It's just like the word the to me. And, you know, I, I, I've dedicated my life to make sure other families don't go through what we went through. And it, it's been a challenge. I've been speaking for about almost 30 years. So I would say 27, 28 years, uh, presenting my program to high schools, colleges. Uh, I've done military bases in the last 10 been working with the local court here in Northeast Ohio, where I talk to DUI offenders. And I'll be honest, Dave, that's been the most rewarding audience of my entire speaking career because they come in pissed off. They don't want to be there. And uh, you start off by doing stand up because, you know, they, they're not expecting to laugh, but you make them laugh, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes and they're not expecting it. And then you could take them wherever you want on this journey. And to see them change before you, before your eyes is a beautiful thing. And, you know, if we can make a difference 
with their lives than for them to never drive drunk again, then they are going to save other lives and so forth. And that's what it's really all, all about. I think if we can make a difference in society in a positive way, then then we're doing something right. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, I could have done nothing my entire life, but I was put on this path to do something. And you know, I couldn't let my mom's death be for nothing. Yeah, and I think any of us, you know, like who have had to negotiate and navigate life-altering loss, we have a couple of different choices. You know, we can choose not to try to find meaning in the midst of tragedy, or we can choose to do so. And for those of us that do, we end up finding a greater purpose than we could ever envision, and not because of our loved one's death, but because of the challenges that arise from it. And, I mean, there are times that I don't know if you've ever ex experienced or there are times I wish I had something less drastic in my life other than the transition of my daughter to get me to that point. But it is what it is for me is that this is what happened. So now how do I make the best of the time that I have remaining on this earth? And how do I help others in the process? Oh, 100%. I wish I had like a hangnail instead. That would have been a lot easier to deal with uh, than what we've been through, especially at a young age for me, because I navigated grief and trauma as a kid. So my entire life has been filled with trauma and, and grief. And it wasn't until uh, 2018 my father passed away January. My aunt passed away 90 days later. Did I end up in grief counseling? And for the very first time, we started to process my mother's death because my counselor said, let's talk about your mom's death and how that impacted all your relationships. I'm like, I'm not here to talk about my mom. And she's like, yeah, we are. And it was refreshing. It was scary, but it had to be done. And once you figure out the whys and the hows, you could kind of process this and how to change mm -hmm. to be a better person. Because the problem was me and I had to fix myself. And we did a, a huge deep dive into counseling to, to cover everything. Well, for the listeners who are wondering why it might have taken you 48 years to get to the point where you, you wanted to therapy after everything that happened in 1970. Back in 1970, there was nothing as far as grief support. There was nothing in terms of grief counseling. And essentially, you know, as, as and I've talked about this on other podcasts, uh, as men, we were learned kind of just to suck it up. You know, you just, you just move through, you, you, you become solution focused, you work through your grief, you learn not to acknowledge feelings because feelings make you vulnerable. And you just powered through it. But there's, after a while, and a friend of mine had this analogy. It's like a, a dog who gets bitten. And they guess they go run around, they chase their tail because they're in pain. And then they try to outrun the pain, but then eventually they just collapse from exhaustion because the pain eventually catches up with them. And, but I, and I, I found that in your book when you talked about that progression from, that, there, that essentially that there was nothing during that time for you. There's no such thing as, is grief support or grief counseling during that time for you to begin to even process anything? Yeah, it's family members that read the book said, we always thought you were fine. So, and you're right, no one knew to ask. No one, because that was just my life. My mom was dead. You know, let's just continue being a swimmer and, and so forth and being a kid. You know, my brother had some memories of my mom, bits and pieces of the car crash he remembered. And he 
had a difficult time when my dad went to work. He had that separation anxiety. He would freak out. He would cry. He would throw a fit. And they had to do different things for him. For me, I've always known my life. My, you know, my life was this way. Every school form, mother's name, deceased. No one asked why. No one asked any questions about that. It was just that's my normal. My mom's dead. Much for lunch, mm -hmm. you know. It's just it's just one of those things. And but you're right. Back in 1970, 80, no one knew to ask any questions. And you know why would they think otherwise? But as you know, you start thinking about the whys and the hows and what would life be like. And yeah, I'm, there was a huge chunk of my life missing, um, not having my mom and the way it happened which was so preventable and the anger and the pain all those things just kept on building and building and swimming was a huge good outlet for me you know someone like ticker was was a good outlet mm -hmm. for me uh you know spider-man my, my other role models outside the family was you know a good outlet of deepest mm -hmm. yeah speaking of tiger because he's he's been sitting here very passionately and i'm sure as your tiger's been sitting there very passionately when I read your book, I discovered there were both big fans of Tigger, the Disney character Tigger. What do you think Tigger can teach us about navigating life's challenges? What do you think he has to teach us? I think it's it's a couple of things. Number one is try to be you know happy and uh, for for yourself, but also to look in on other people because he was always making sure other people were happy and 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 okay. So I think taking care of ourselves first and then checking in at other people as well. And that's what I took away from Tigger as a kid and even as a as an adult in terms of, you know, he's happy-go-lucky. Is he always that way? No, there's times Tigger's down. But then he has his support crew that looks in on him too to make sure that he's okay. So he's back to the Tigger we know and, and love. So... You know, those are a couple of the, of the things that I took away from Tigger. And, you know, the other thing you mentioned that, you know, Tigger got down too, but he was also amenable to support. He also was support from his other cast of characters on Pooh Corner. But I think that he can also teach us to, to kind of, you know, be in that moment, even if it's the moment of sadness, because it can teach us something. And we can learn that we can get through it either with support or that just reinforces our will to survive if we can we can get through it at this point. So, but thank you, Tigger. This is going to be this is an audio recording, by the way. But uh, we do have the option to go on YouTube with this. So, if you uh, we do go with the convert to video, you will see our dueling Tiggers. But we're going to put Tigger aside for now. So, the other thing about Tigger, and this is what reminds me of my daughter Janine so much, is that he bounced through a lot of things. So, when in doubt, bounce. And he was the only one. He was unique. And he celebrated his uniqueness. And I think in grief, we can all be tiggers. You know, we, we're, we're all tiggers. We can, we can bounce through the, through the path of grief and, and transcend grief in our own way. And it all works, whether it's faith-based, whether, you know, non-dogmatic-based, it all works. It's just what works for us and what we can learn from it. So I think Tigger can teach us, hey, just bounce to the way that, bounce the way that's going to fit our our unique lifestyle and beliefs. Oh, I totally agree with that. And, you know, because we do bounce from moment to moment to moment in our grief, you know, or breath to breath. And, you know, um, sometimes we don't stop because we just want to keep bouncing, but then we have to go back and go, let me stop just for a second mm -hmm. till I get to that next mm -hmm. one and then the next one from there. Yeah. 
You've already gone into this, Michael, but I, I want to read this passage from your book because this really resonated for me. For me, I have experienced grief and depression through every stage of my life as a child, teen, and an adult. And I myself, this resonated because I've danced with, with grief ever since I've been five years old. So for 63 years of my life, grief has been a part of it. Can you take a deeper dive into this for our listeners? I know you did already, but is there anything you want to add to that? in terms of what that statement means to you and go more into it? Yeah, uh, you know, looking back, especially when I wrote the book, to kind of pinpoint certain things as a child of depression, you know, withdrawing, you know, escaping into, you know, I used to perform magic and just pretending to be someone else or playing with my Star Wars toys, just taking me away from reality is what I was doing. Uh, so I wouldn't feel sad and I wouldn't feel what's wrong with me at, at that point in time. Um, you know, we were too busy swimming in, in school for anything else. But I also knew there was something missing out of my life, even though I was raised by my father and a, a Jamaican woman named Dolly. So you know, my grandmother put an ad in the newspaper for part-time help back in 1970. And here was this woman on vacation visiting her sister in New York. She and Dolly's from originally from Jamaica, and she was living in England at the time. And she answered the ad, and what was supposed to be a part-time job turned into a lifetime. You know, she's 92 years old. Um, you might want to edit that out, so I didn't say her her actual age because otherwise she'll kill me. But as a child, you know, even having her, it was still normal for me. But you still knew something was wrong. So that was part of it. And then as a teenager. Um, and into early years of college, I started to think all the whys, and I became angry. And I wasn't an angry person, but I was—I would swim angry, and angry was a good, healthy outlet. I was angry at Harvey Dennison for killing my mom. I was angry at God, angry at my father for never talking about my mom or, or the car crash, not realizing he just couldn't. You know, I always wanted him just to lay it all out, tell me about my mom without you know, prodding because he knew there was pain in that. But I still felt, hey, you should tell your sons, you know, this information. Um, and luckily, humor was was a defense mechanism for me. You know, I'm very blessed to have that because if I didn't have humor and someone like my, you know, dad and Dolly and, you know, probably so many, you know, would I even be this, you know, this old? Because the depression was there. And one things that really kept me alive during that time, even into my early 20s, was I knew my mom sacrificed her life for me. So I firmly I firmly believe that she saw that headlight coming. It did something at last second to protect me. As bad as my injuries were, um, you know, I didn't die. And I was kept alive for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And once I started doing that program or thought about it, I went, I have a purpose. And we talked about that before. He said mean, meaning for our grief and, and trauma. So college swimming was a good outlet. My early 20s where I wanted to meet my mom, you know, I realized I will meet her on my own time frame. So it was interesting to look back and pinpoint, yeah, I was facing uh, depression as a child because I was doing this and that and withdrawing and just wanted to be by myself in another world, mm -hmm. you know, my toys and stuff. And as a teenager, I got into magic and, you know, I, 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 I dove into, you know, my 80s music and pretended to be, you know, a member of Kiss and, you know, all those weird things just to find a level of normalcy. Mm -hmm. 
And then once I got into an adulthood and that depression was still there and, you know, then it got more and more, you know, as you get older, you're, you're faced with more trauma and, and adult situations and how to cope. And that was getting to be the hard part. So when my, in 2018, when my dad, and my aunt passed away, I had a plan. I was done. I was like, I just want this pain to stop. It's not like I wanted to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. And I thought what I was going to do when I had that, even though I always had notions of doing something mm-hmm. before even that point in time. And, you know, my friends were um, thinking about my friends, uh, thinking about my dad. But what kept me from doing it in 2018 was I couldn't send my brother and Dolly, you know, back to the cemetery three times within six months. I couldn't do that to them. I couldn't do that to my friends. And I knew other people that passed away either for suicide or death. My friend, uh, John Kelly, who was my college friend for 15 years, and he died as a result of being a drunk driver. And that crushed me. I mean, the anger and and the pain from that was, how dare you Mm -hmm. do that to me? And so thinking about what, how his death impacted all of us, I didn't want my friends going through that. So I had to get help. And, you know, once I got that, I realized the depression stopped in my life. You know, it controlled me and now I controlled it. I learned, you know, certain tips. I, I, I learned that I control how I react to certain things. Mm-hmm. I can eventually fix my serotonin levels by doing certain things. I got into photography. My dad got me and my brother into photography. So I went back to that uh, hiking in Northeast Ohio, um, just finding things for balance really saved my life along with thinking about those I would leave behind and talking about grief and trauma and emotions was free. And, and, you know, I, as, as a man, it's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was I'll say frame from mm-hmm. it. It's such a relief to be able to talk about it. It'd be great to talk about grief and trauma as a man, like we do sports. You know, and I think uh, through you and other people I, I've met, you know, in our little circle, we are able to talk about this without any problems. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with a smile because we realize how free we are from some of that. We still have the pain and trauma and grief, but we know how to manage it better. It's never going to go away, but as if we know how to manage it better, then, then I think we're living healthier lives. Well, you know, too have any type of negative emotion, whether it's sadness or anger, totally go away. It's never going to go away because we're not going to live through this life from my perspective, just being being happy all the time. Happiness isn't to me by itself the key to fulfillment. It's getting in touch with all our emotions. I tell my students at Utica University, I don't hang around with happy people because people who are happy 24-7 isn't realistic. You know, you, you can't be right. doing great all the time. Um, but that's just the narrative, the false narrative that we've all bought into that happiness leads to fulfillment. If you're experiencing grief or any, any type of long, you know, term time frame, that there's something pathological about that. So you got to stop with the negative emotions, which is a big part of who we are. That's a big part of what makes us who we are. We have to stop that so we can just be happy all the time. And it would be tiring for me, Michael, to be happy all the time. It takes a lot of energy, right? It does. And sometimes it's easier just to feel sad and depressed. Yeah. 
you know, you know, because we kind of give into it. I did this the past week with uh, the passing of the comedy club owner, where I didn't pick up my clothes. I didn't do the dishes. I left stuff in the, in the dryer. Didn't make my bed. That was so much easier than to get organized. And after a week, I was like, I got to get my life mm-hmm. together. And I did that, went out for a hike. I had my camera and I took pictures just to find that balance. And I think you're right. There has to be that happy medium where it's okay to be sad and down as long as we kind of come back from that, that we're not always, you know, we don't always have that dark cloud over our heads. Yeah, with anger, as long as it doesn't lead us to get arrested or we're, the anger isn't destructive Correct. to ourselves or somebody yes. else, the anger can be productive. It can be, it can give us the energy to get through a difficult moment, you know. So I think it's all good. I think it's just all we have to celebrate. Maybe that's not the term I want to really use, but we have to kind of embrace every emotion that we have because it's got something to teach us. Yeah, anger was great because one of the things I learned in grief counseling was I, I had to throw bing bags against the wall. And when I did that, I took out, and you heard the noise from it. And I there was a lot of anger when I did that with my friend John in terms of him dying as the result of a drunk driver. So much so that I had to go back to grief counseling in 2020 during the 50th anniversary because I still had some, those, everything came back. I turned 50, which is a huge milestone. Car crash was 50. You know, it was COVID. I was still mad at John and I got EMDR this time around with a, with a century. Mm-hmm. And I really focused on letting that anger go for John. And that was free. And I remember some of that stuff from the first time grief counseling. And again, getting help is a sign of strength. And we all need help. We can't do it all on our own. Um, and it's okay. And, and it's liberating. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it makes you a better person getting through that trauma and, and grief on your own time frame and understanding why you do certain things. It's very helpful. Yeah, it is. And and. Saying that we can't do this ourselves is very liberating because now we're opening ourselves up. And we're opening ourselves up to be vulnerable, but vulnerable, I think, in a good way. As I'm saying to you, I can't do this myself. I trust that you're going to give me what I need at this particular moment to help me get get through this this challenging time. But it doesn't mean I have to build a long-standing relationship with you, but I just trust that you're going to be one of these people that are going to help me at this point in my journey. And whether or not we develop a relationship is still up for grabs because if we develop it, it's going to be gradually as we get to know each other, as we get to to become more familiar with with each other's values and background. And in reality, those are those are healthy ways to build relationships. It's just through gradually getting to know each other over a period of time. A hundred percent. And you know, it's interesting. So one of the books I read about grief and stuff was uh, it takes you know, 18 to 20 visits, you know, with your counselor to feel familiar with them. And I knew my counselor for uh, many years. So she knew what questions mm-hmm. to ask and how to prod me from day one. And I went, I trust this person. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to give her everything. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything because that's not going to help me in terms of the long No, but I think we give ourselves permission. I think, well, for you, this was, an, you know, you knew this, your counselor very well. But for somebody who gets into a therapeutic situation or for the first time with somebody they don't know, I think it's going to be natural for them to hold back some information. And it isn't lying. 
Yep. It's just, this isn't the time. I'm not sure I can trust this person at this point to, to share this level of intimacy. However, down the road, as I become more comfortable, more pieces come out. And I try to impress that to my students, whether they're dealing, dealing with grief support, whether they're dealing with mental health issues, you let the story unfold at a pace that the client's comfortable. Clients drive in the bus. You let him, her, or them drive it in whatever gear they want to drive it and how fast they want to drive it. You just go where they're going to take you. And I think it's the same with everything. I think if we can, if we can follow that practice, I think we can help all, we can help many individuals navigate any kind of challenge. So anyway, you are a comedian by trade. Explain to our listeners how humor has been therapeutic for you. It can it be oh, can it be therapeutic for you? You got into it a little bit, but take a deeper dive into it. Can it be therapeutic? <laughs> can it be therapeutic for others? And and so I'm asking the obvious here, Michael. Yeah, a hundred. Oh yeah, totally. It can be. You know, when someone comes to a comedy club and they thank you afterwards, a lot of times someone will say, "Thank you for making me laugh. I needed that so much." You know, we, you know, for that hour, hour and a half, whatever they are to the comedy club to take someone away from that pain or whatever they're going through on the outside to make them forget is, is a beautiful thing. And, and, and it's not really why I got into it. I got into it because I was always good at making someone laugh and I loved their creative process and, and, and doing it. But, you know, for the audience members who say thank you for that. And, you know, you, you write jokes and not knowing how it's going to impact someone, but that power, but laughter is so powerful. Humor is so powerful. You know, for me, it was always a defense mechanism, but it was something I enjoyed doing. And I, I have two goals on a daily basis when I leave my home is to make someone laugh and make a difference in someone's life. And if I could do that when I come home and it's me and Tigger and, and dinner, then, then I'm a happy boy. But it's, you know, it, it's making them feel good about themselves and that emotion where, you know, it's not always easy to make someone laugh. And but when they come to a show and they do and they have those endorphins going again and, and you, you know, just that little bit of, of escape, it, it's a beautiful thing to have that bond with them and to be a part of that uh, process is a, is a pretty amazing feeling too. So laughter for us on stage is addictive because mm -hmm. you hear that, Joe, you throw the first joke out, now you want another one, then you want another one. When something bombs, you kind of go, oh, crap. And then you get on to the next one. And, you know, so the, it, the audience hopefully is very forgiven, but everyone's there to have a good time. And just to be a part of that process is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I know for me, humor's got me, dry humor's got me through a lot. I used to work in the field of addiction for you know, 27 years. And, you know, I'd hear a lot of really, really, just really heart-wrenching stories, you know, of abuse and, and other trauma. And actually, the humor helped me. It wasn't so much to, to escape from the, the client's stories because I loved working with the clients. The humor was to deal with sometimes some of the clueless administrators I had to deal with. So it, it, the clients were great. I mean, I could deal with their trauma. I just couldn't deal with some of the Lack of lack of insight, for lack for okay. diplomatic way to put that, 
of some of the administrators I worked with. The humor got me through dealing with that that quagmire, but it's it's you know it's gotten me through some got me through got me through my own stuff with with grief as well too. Right. It's 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 all about balance, right? And you know, healthcare workers. You know, those healthcare workers, first responders have the most warped sense of humor. Oh yeah. You know, they see deadliest stuff, the grossest stuff, and some of their jokes are about that. But to them, that's how they cope. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, an outside person go, well, what the hell is wrong with them? Making fun of that. But that's that's a coping mechanism in, in a healthy yeah. way. It's kind of like you have to laugh before you start crying. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's, I, I would rather see that than, you know, I see somebody laughing at either, you know, getting into where they're raging on somebody or just, you know, just right. beating the crap out of somebody. So. Speaking of Dolly, in your book, you described yourself as Jewish born and Jamaican bred. I love that. What tell the audience the influence? And I know Dolly might not really be un, be uncomfortable hearing about her influence, but we're going to go there anyway, Dolly. So, what was the influence? Yeah, yeah, too bad, Dolly. So we're going to go there. What was the influence that Dolly had on your life after your mother's death? And I, from reading the book, I, I could see it. I sensed it was profound, but get into that for our listeners. I would just, you know, I could sum it up with everything. You know, she she raised me as her own. Uh, as my brother and I would, would say, you know, I, she 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 raised me as her own. She loved me as her own. She beat me as her own. Uh, well, back then, you no, know, 1970 or so, that, that was called discipline. We don't have that anymore. But she was everything to us. And... You don't find people like that that would step into that motherhood role. At least I don't think so. And it was just fate that brought her into our family. And their early days when we lived in New York, she would stay in my room. So in the crib, I was in the crib and she was, you know, be there Monday through Friday. Of course, a couple of years ago, I the unveiling of my dad and my aunt's headstones in, in Long Island. She was telling stories and she said, I remember when you were in your cage. And I was like, you mean crib? She's she's like, no, cage. I went, well, that explains a lot now. But she she raised me and my brother as her own flesh and blood. And it wasn't about race, color, creed, religion. It was about basic human need. She taught me about compassion, unconditional love, and what the human spirit could do for one another, along with my father. She's been the driving force in my life, uh, inspiration, motivation, uh, the shoulder to cry on when, when I need it, uh, my defender uh, in, in life as well, because I am her son. And like any good parent, she would defend me uh, no matter what. So for uh, 53 years, she's been, you know, I would say my life. You know, Mother's Day, I have my biological mom who gave me birth and I have Dolly that gave me a, a life, you know, so to speak. And she... You know, along with Tigger, she's my role model. She defined me to be the person I am today. Values and ethics and, and all those uh, rolled into one. And everyone that met her growing up as a kid and fellow swimmers, you know, they have fond memories of her. And, you know, they're better people, too, because they have special memories of, of Dolly. Mm -hmm. And for her to be still strong as ever, is 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 amazing. I mean, reading your accounts of her in the book, the first thing I got on my boy, what a force of nature she is. I wouldn't want to mess with her. No. I wouldn't want to mess with her at all. She reminds me a lot of my own mother, who died in 1977, 
uh, transition to 1977, or not 77, excuse me, 1994. 1977 is when I graduated from, from college. But she, and she, my mother, after, after my father had left uh, when I was five and never to be seen again, she had the same moral compass as Dolly. She raised me with values. She raised me with ethics. She taught me how to treat people. She taught me if you're going to do anything, give it your best effort. And she was really a force of nature. She was five foot tall, and I wouldn't mess with her either. When she got mad, I would run for cover. Now, I'm five foot 11, so you can try to picture a five foot, little over five foot woman chasing me with a wooden spoon and yep. and her just, just yelling at me, thinking to myself, hey, I'm not messing with that. So it's, it's kind of another thing that when I was reading about Dolly, I, I saw a lot of my mother in her as well, too. And it kind of was another point of, of commonality that I saw between us. Sure. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because when they're chasing us, they might as well stop because, you know, by the time they catch up to us, it's just going to be a lot worse anyway. So might as well just, you know, stop having them chasing yeah. us around. But, you know, she was going to be a nurse back in Jamaica. She was one of the first policewomen in Scotland Yard. And she loved babies and, and, and just her spirit to step up to this plate. And even when her visa was up and my grandfather sponsored her to stay in the country or kidnapped her. I'm really not too sure which one's which anymore, but she could have left our family. But she, by that time she was part of her family. And you take that dynamic of, again, it wasn't about we were Jewish and white and she was black and not, it was about basic human need. And Man, you, you take those values and it's and it's pretty amazing to grow up in a diverse culture where you just see it as normal. I didn't see any difference of it till I, you know, stepped out of you know, South Florida, went to Ohio and was faced with anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and, and racism, even from my own teammates and and swim coach, who was probably the biggest anti-Semitic that I'd had to deal with in college. And it was very interesting how to learn, but I think my dad and her instilled morals and values and how to cope with that type of stuff. It was a challenge. It was hard, but they prepared me for those type mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. And that was, that was the one thing that struck me in terms of the diversity in your household, but that, you know, just, you know, you're, you've dealt with the generational trauma of anti-Semitism. And then also you have the racism card on top of that, you know, with that deal you know, with, with Dolly. And it's like the fact that you guys navigated that as a family with such grace and, you know, and honor and integrity, I think is really commendable. You know, given, given the challenges of both the inherent, both of those, both of those cultures, I think you guys did a, it was just a, just a really tremendous job of not making that a factor in your lives. Yeah. And, and I don't think it was, cause that's all I knew. And I think my grandparents, you know, it was about, I think back then it was probably about what's best for the boys and how do we do that? That I think even for my father, you know, he didn't really date. It was like, I need to be here for my sons. And that was the bottom line. So I think that was always the motivation for, for any of it. And since, it, and if you're grown up and that's all you know, and then it's not a thing. It's just like, that's my normal life. You know, how come everyone doesn't ask, how come that family has two white parents, you know, why are they so odd and different for me? 
you know, I'm the normal one, but I also knew something was wrong because I knew Dolly wasn't my mom. So it goes back to, you know, the, those things as a kid in terms of why am I so different? Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's wrong with me in, in that way? And, you know, what would life be like if I had my mom? And then you think about all those questions and all those whys, but then you're blessed with someone like Dolly, but at the same time, I am missing something else in my life, mm-hmm. you know, my a biological mom. So that's hard to separate sometimes because on one hand you go, God, what would life be like mom is still alive and so forth. But on the other hand, I'm blessed to have this woman that raised me as her own. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it, it's very interesting to uh, have those feelings. Well, and I, I think, you know, one, I think, as you mentioned, I think Dolly was destined to come into your life when she did. I think that was, you want to call it predetermination. You want to call it fate. You want to call it divine intervention. She came in at, right at the exact time that, right. that you, you and your dad and your brother needed her. The other piece, and as I was reading about your experience of grief, you know, from literally, we could take a look at from eight weeks old right on to the, to the, to the time of your father and your aunt transitioned or passed. You know, grief tends to reinvent itself is through the developmental life cycles of the, through our developmental, developmental life cycle. Children at age five have a different interpretation of meaning and grief than they do at age 10 or 12. And as they, ex- they progress developmentally, their expressions of grief and death also tend to resurface based on that developmental stage. So the fact that this was resurfacing and as you began to throughout your life is in some ways predictable and in some ways was, was, was you were going to ask those questions like, geez, I see everybody with an intact family. What would it have been like for me to have my mother? What would it have been like? Even though Dolly provided you with, you know, was the mother figure. What would it have been like to have your biological mother? Would things have been different? Would I be walking the path that I was walking now? And those questions are a natural, you know, a natural outcome of how grief for grief progresses as we grow. Yeah, and, and no doubt. I mean, you kind of think about, God, would I have been a comedian? Would I have been, you know, a typical Jewish doctor or lawyer mm-hmm. or God forbid, a Jets fan if he didn't move to <laughs> South Florida and I was a Dolphins fan. So there's things a lot worse. Uh, and, and hey, I got to tell, I gotta tell uh, you, my uh, sister's a Dolphins fan, so good. Good. I'll, 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 I'll give her your contact information. Yeah. You know, we, we, could, we could be misery together for this upcoming season. Yeah, it, it, it's those things. And you're right. It's just a natural thing about those what ifs. And then it, it, then it drives you insane. Because you think about those things, you know, it was sort of like Marty McFly and, and Back yeah. to the Future. One day he was going one way, then all of a sudden, you know, another life just happened. And it's like, okay, this is the life I have now. I have to make the most of it. Because either I can sit in a room with the curtains darkened every day and say, woe is me, my life sucks. Or I could get up and do something. And that's where my dad and Dolly came into play. Get up and do something. Even though my dad, that first year, after the car crash with Dolly, he didn't say a word. You know, he was quiet. And back to your question or statement about being five and 10, I emulated what my father did. So when he passed away and my aunt passed away, I kept it all inside until it almost mm-hmm. killed me. And because I went, well, that's what my father did. That's all I know. 
and then you you know and and then you realize uh, it wasn't healthy uh, to do that because you're going to explode. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think I think the old Abbott and Costello routine where you try to put two pounds of bologna in a one pound bag. Eventually, that bag's going to burst because you're trying. It's just going to trying to hold all those emotions in. You're trying to hold all that trauma in, and all of a sudden, it's just going to it's just going to explode. It's going to come out somewhere. Yeah. Um, it's going to come out somewhere. How did the magic of life program evolve? What was like the the minute the the kind of like the moment for you? You walk up and said, "I want to do this program." And what is the? I know you've talked about the mission of your initiative, but tell us about more about the impact that this you believe this program has had. How many individuals you have have taken part in your program? What do you what do you see as being the, the impact of the program to date? Well, it started, I was, I was in college, I found out about, I was part of campus activities board and then I found out about speakers and comedians and all those types of things on the college level. I put together a program using magic to symbolize things when it comes to alcohol. Like I was doing the needle, the needle through the balloon trick on how binge drinking, you know, your stomach can explode and, but still talking about my story. And I was in grad school and I did it one time when I worked for EF International School of English down in, in South Florida, because our international students will go out and, you know, they're European. So their background in alcohol is a lot different than Americans, but still didn't want anything happen to them when they're on South Beach, you know, driving drunk and stuff. So I did it for them, knowing that that was sort of what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into higher education. And, um, you know, be a speaker eventually. And then when I was in grad school, I had one of my students ask if I could put together a fun program for her sorority. And that was around 93, 94, around that time. And then this kind of grew and, and grew. And, you know, I knew about the speaking associations and, and so forth. And, you know, going from there. And the magic was just a symbolism. So back then, you know, the magical life was just because I was doing magic tricks. Now I think it takes on a, the last 10, 15 years, it took on a whole other meaning of the magical of life where I've been blessed to do it for so long. You know, high schools before the proms, um, I've done military bases because, you know, even if you're in the military, you get a DOI, you face a lot of consequences mm-hmm. there. You, you can lose stripes, you can lose promotions. And you think about the military where it's their job to protect people like us. But yet they're getting behind the wheel of a car, drunk, putting this in harm's mm-hmm. way. And then the DUI offender. So speaking for, gosh, almost 30 years, Dave, I I can't tell you how many sp- people I, I've spoken in front of. But, you know, everyone I get has been, it's an honor and I'm lucky to do it. You know, if you can make a difference, at least with someone, you know, one person in the audience from, you know, whether it's 15 people to 2,000, you just hope to impact some lives so they don't go through what I've gone through or be the cause of it. You know, I tell them, you know, don't be the cause of someone's pain and suffering. Be the cause of someone's happiness, um, you know, if you can and make the right decisions in life. So the impact is, is beyond my scope of imagination. I just know the first time I spoke at the courthouse, I had a 19 year old uh, stop me in the parking lot and she said, thank you making me realize my son needs me more than alcohol. I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, you know, it's nice to get paid to speak, but when you hear how you change someone's life 
you can't put a price tag on that. And that's that's why I love doing it because it involves comedy and audience participation and my story. So we can have fun, but also with an inspirational message of uh, making the right decisions in, in your life. Yeah, and you can have fun while talking about a very difficult topic. And, yeah, And exactly. I think, you know, I think we can do that with just about anything. And it's not showing any disrespect to the topic. It's just creating an atmosphere to make it easier to talk about and to make it more accessible. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a tribute to my mom. It's it's an honor my mom. Uh, and then once uh, John died, I started to include him, which was gut-wrenching as well. Because I have, you know, I have 15 years of memories with, with Big John and my other friends in college. I have no memories of my mom. So it's a little bit, I want to say, a little bit easier to talk about my mom than it is John mm-hmm. at times. I mean, both were extremely tough, don't get me wrong. But, you know, you know when you remember, you know, last time I talked to John or the last time I saw John and uh, you think about those memories and you're doing it to honor people that you loved and were part of your, your life. It, it's not about me so much. It's about them. It is about the lives in front of me and, and how to change them. Yeah, I, I remember when, after John died, you incorporated him into your program. And I remember reading in your book how gut-crunching gut that was for you to have to do that. But, you know, I mean, you honor him every time you do that program and you honor your friendship. And, you know, you mentioned... I mean, every rela- every death, every relationship has such its own unique characteristics. And I think the grief journey is going to be different. The issues that we face are going to be different. How we grieve it is going to be based on, you know, the nature of that relationship, of what was gained, what was lost. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it's all, it all has its own unique challenges. Um, and you, boy, you've been through a bunch with the, every death that you've experienced has had its own unique set of challenges including almost your own near death when you think about that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's days you, you know, you, you don't want to get out of bed and you realize how lucky I am to be here. Even in Northeast Ohio when it snows and the weather's crap. And it's like, man, if I could complain about the weather, it's still a good day for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you try to find the silver lining as best as you can. And you're, and to go back to what you said, I'm not always 100% happy. You know, I know my serotonin levels dip. And like even now with the week I've had with uh, the owner of the comedy club, Pete Dine, and knowing on Friday night, I got two shows to do. I have to find that balance pretty quickly to be able to stay on stage and and entertain people. So, you know, it's those things that that we I'll dive back into my toolkit of what I've learned through beef counseling to help me there. Cool. Very, very cool. And my grand, you want, you want, my granddaughter just walked in. You want to say hi to her? This is, this is, this is, yeah, come on. This is Janine's daughter, Brianna. This is, this is Michael and Tigger. So my granddaughter hi. made a surprise visit during the podcast. That's awesome. How are you? Yeah. How are you? Tell them how you are. Really great. Thanks. How yeah. are you? Awesome. So glad. I'm fantastic. Yeah. That is. She is. We're having a great time. And I'm sure you are. All right. You got to let me go finish now. Okay, hurry up. <laughs> oh, geez. That's one of the beautiful things about doing a podcast at home. You just never know who's going to. And if I edit that out or if I have, if I have Colton edit this out, um, she's right. probably, my granddaughter will probably never talk to me again. 
Yeah, I don't edit her out. Leave, leave her in there. It's part of the show. It's fantastic. I think it is too. So you just never know who's going to drop in during the Teaching Journeys podcast, you know? I'm going to read this passage from your book about the magic of life. This is just so beautiful and so profound. The reason I do my program is so you don't have to. This is my life. I don't want this to be yours. I Tears came to my eyes when I read that because... I think you probably summed up, I think, what all of us who have been through tragic loss have thought about. Because, yeah, I do what I do because this is my life. I want you to have greater clarity in yours, and I don't want this to be your life. Yeah, it's trying to prevent that pain. And you know, with, with impaired driving, it's preventable. And it takes me back when I was 15. When I went, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to stop people from drinking and driving. And maybe I was a immature, mature 15-year-old thinking about that path. But something clicked in my brain at that point in time. And maybe I was coming into my own, dare I say, maturity or understanding my life tality, maybe, and knowing how lucky I was. And then thinking about my mother and that pain that it caused and not wanting other people to have the same feelings because it sucks. Mm. It's horrible. And it's sad. It's tragic. It's painful. And you know, I've lived it for almost 53 years and I don't want anyone to go through this, but we both know. We could pick up a newspaper every day or oh, and log into a website uh, for all you youngsters out there uh, and, and see car crashes and people dying due to drunk driving. Uh, the most recent one that I can remember off the top of my head was the bride that was killed on her wedding day, um, who was hit behind uh, on the golf cart on her wedding day. And now her husband, for what, an hour or two, has to live with that grief. Those are the things that make me angry and sad about that's how we are in society and what's how, how many more people have to die mm-hmm. before we realize we can't do this anymore. It sucks. And... You know, you bang your head against the wall and there's days I'm going to quit speaking because you kind of go, why am I doing this? What difference am I making? And then you go to court and you do the program and someone wants to give you a hug or shake your hand or take a bracelet or buy a book or donate and says, thank you for making a difference in my life. Then you kind of go, that's why I'm still doing it. Yeah, and and I do it too. Whenever I hear somebody say, you know, what you said to me really gave me a different perspective. That's why I... That keeps me going. That keeps me going, even yeah. during the downtime. So anyway, to, to wrap up, or getting close to wrapping up, give our listeners one or two takeaways from your life path that can help them navigate their own life challenges. Sure. Uh, number one, always listen to the rock band Kiss. That's uh, first and foremost, Dave. They have to be, you know, listening <laughs> to them. I think one is to, on a more serious level, one is to, have your sense of humor, you know, laugh, you know, even at the dumbest things or even the most serious things, because, you know, it's that fine balance, but always keep that sense of humor because it's a good defense mechanism. And two, you know, when you're feeling low and, and down, you know, ask for help. Your life means something. It's valuable. It's precious. You know, we only have one of these. Take it from a guy that almost didn't have a, a life and how beautiful it can be even in the dark times we can come out of it with a good support system people to help us people who love us so 
don't ever be afraid to ask for that help because it's out there. And there's people that want you to be healthy and be successful and as happy as possible. Well, thank you for that. And you are a great role model for that message, Michael. And finally, how can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? How can they purchase copies of your book? By the way, I would give a wholehearted, unfiltered, unsolicited recommendation. Buy this man's book, The Magic of Life, A Sun Story of Hope After Tragedy, Grief, and a Speedo. Well, yeah, we didn't talk about that because I was a swimmer. That's how Speedo got into it. I'm not wearing one now. It's That would be kind of weird. But yeah, it was just, you know, we had to find some humor in the title, That's right? right. humor is a part of my life. Um, people could find me on, on Facebook mostly, you know, Michael Gersh, G-E-R-S-H-E. You can find the book on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. I have Instagram. It's G-E-R-S-H-E-P-I-X, where it's most of my photography type of stuff. Din as well. I'm on Twitter, which I don't know why. I'm like my father trying to figure out the VCR clock. I'm on Twitter. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing on there or how to work it. But Facebook mostly, LinkedIn. You can find Michael Gersh Photography also on Facebook as well. But Oh, and the, and the website is themagicoflife.org. And you can see a link to my TED Talk presentation that I did a couple of years ago and also a promo video that I do like for high schools and, and so forth. Well, there's a, several different ways to get in touch with you. And I'm glad you're pretty accessible. I thought I was the world's oldest millennial. You got me beat. <laughs> you got me beat. Well, anyway, with that, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And I enjoyed our conversation. And I look forward to doing this again with you. I'm sure our paths will cross. I hope so, too, David. And I really appreciate the opportunity. You're welcome. And with that, that is another wrap of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts. Wishing you peace. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.